The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the podcast, Gator Nation. It's great to be back with you. I'm sitting here again with James DiVirgilio. My name is Alan Williams. We have a fun show for you guys, mailbag time. We're going to answer a ton of questions. We're going to look at the UGA game. It's going to be a blast. James, what up? Alan, good to have you back. Yeah. I had the solo cast last week. Uh, for those of you that gave feedback on the solo cast, both good and bad. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's great to have a person to talk to. Uh, I'm, I'm a very extroverted person, which I don't think will surprise most of you that are listening, whether you know me or not. So having someone in the booth with me, much appreciated, especially when it is the illustrious Alan Williams. Uh, Alan, before we begin the podcast, we will do what we do to open every single podcast. My solo cast last week did not bring in the patrons. Okay. I must not have moved the needle. We're going to say it was a bye week, and that's why. But uh, regardless, if you like the content on this show, you can always head to Facebook and give us a like. You can also head to Patreon and you can support us or you can give us a dono. And this past week, Florida State's head coach, Willie Taggart, gave us a dono. Thanks for coming on board, Willie. Thank you, Willie. I guess you've started to win games now and you want to support the show. But whoever Willie Taggart is out there, sans name, thank you very much. We appreciate the support. And as always, the top supporter, the undisputed champion, Alexander Leventhal, still all season long, still our on number top. one guy. Appreciate that, Alexander. All right, Alan, let's jump into Georgia week and then put, put the brakes on Georgia week into the mailbag questions. But we can't start this show without asking this question. Who out there, besides JT Raymond, would have thought that college game day would be in the house on Saturday at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, that it would have two top 10 teams featured and that Florida would only be only be a seven point underdog please honk your horn raise your hand do whatever it is you're doing right now to, to indicate that action because I can tell you it wasn't me well JT maybe before the season but then you know he quit Gator football as he does like you know when we go down a touchdown um several times throughout the season but he's back now I guess uh if you honk your horn or raise your hand put your hand back down unhonk that horn I don't think anybody thought We'd be riding in this high with Georgia looking as vulnerable as they did against LSU. Game day's there, so is SEC Nation. I think the first time ever, although that's only been for a couple years, so not that historic. But all eyes on Jacksonville this week. I didn't think, especially after the Kentucky game, that we would have the chance to knock off Georgia. We're going to talk a lot about whether we can or can't, but at least it's within range. At least it's within range. And that's surprising. It's amazing. I mean, I had consistently thought and said on this very podcast, the spread would be at least 14, maybe 17. That's exactly what it was tracking for. And here we are at seven points. Not that the Vegas spread means anything to the outcome of the game, but it goes to show you just how much perception changed 
in the past couple of weeks. And that is really the, the beauty and the joy of college football. It's what makes doing this podcast so much fun. Yeah, you can ask old herbs about that eating some sad pizza after that Purdue game. No one saw that one come in, and that was a crazy one. Yeah, a lot of sad pizza for Ohio State, and and that's a good segue into the national recaps of what happened last week during our bye week. Uh, we'll start with that Ohio State-Purdue game. We watched that in joy and disbelief at the same time. For the longest time, you just figured Ohio State was going to come back and win that game, and then when it was clear that they, they wouldn't and they weren't going to, it was it was like a euphoric moment and I can't still really figure out why I, I want to root so hard against Urban Meyer I mean sure there's the obvious reasons but like I really seriously enjoy rooting against Ohio State at every possible turn and to watch Purdue celebrate the way they did and enjoy a momentous victory of an Ohio State team that just looked vastly inferior on that day was was wholly satisfying but it also teaches you yet another lesson in college football Alabama has so warped everyone's perceptions and it's it's yeah. important that you recognize how incredibly good Alabama is year in and year out, how unbelievably good Nick Saban is, because he's the only one that is seemingly immune to games like Ohio State just had with a healthy team last weekend. Like That's just never going to happen to the modern Bama team, but it's going to happen to probably almost everyone else at some point in time. No one's immune to it. And uh, just another example there. And Alan, let's just start off with this Michigan-Michigan State game. Very, very quietly, under the radar, Jim Harbaugh has his team at number five. No one's really talking about them. They haven't really played necessarily anybody, quote-unquote, but a gutty road win for Michigan. Yeah, Michigan, you know, everyone willing to write them off after that Notre Dame game, but that defense is legit. I mean, Michigan State is not the most prolific offense, but 94 yards total in the game. 21-7, it wasn't even that close. No, monkey off the back as well for yeah. Harbaugh. I think he felt very good in the postgame presser. Oklahoma 52, TCU 27. I talked about on the solo cast last week that TCU just, just seemed to be a team that was overrated from the beginning of the year. I don't know that it's fair to say they've taken any kind of step back. I think they were just overrated, and they were ripe for a season like this. And worse. Oklahoma seems to be riding the ship after the Texas loss. Yeah, TC's starting QB. They had to pull him from the game because he's hurt. The backup came in, did some fun things, but they're just outmatched. If you know you can't slow Oklahoma down, you're never going to touch them. You have to at least put the brakes on them a little bit, and TCU couldn't. Speaking of putting the brakes on, Alabama fifty-eight or beating the brakes off Tennessee twenty-one. Tennessee's feeling good about themselves. They get a win over Auburn, and then what do you get? You you go down twenty-one nothing in the first six or seven minutes of this game to the this the factory of sadness that is Alabama. Alabama just toying with people. This game, I feel like, could have been 75-0 to zero if they had really wanted it to be. Uh, Death Star dominant. They'll blow you up. They really are. They really are the, the Death Star. The Empire Strikes Back, or the Empire Strikes Every Year, if you will. This one, Clemson, NC State. Two undefeated teams. It was a large spread regardless. Trevor Lawrence hasn't put a full game together yet. Kind of did so in this one. 41-7, the game was never close. Clemson was dominant throughout. They seemed to be figuring themselves out. NC State was undefeated, but they hadn't played anybody courtesy of their hurricaned-out game with West Virginia. I, I think they're a little bit of a fraud. They're a decent team, but they weren't a top-notch team, and they were ranked probably accordingly. A good effort from Clemson, though, probably their best game of the season. LSU 19, Mississippi State 3. This game was close for all. It's just painful. We've highlighted a lot on the show because of my like for Joe Moorhead. You can really see with each passing week the frustration 
that both Joe Moorhead and Nick Fitzgerald have for each other, uh, there's not, it's not a good marriage there. It's not a good relationship. Neither one of them, I think, wants the other one as A, the coach, or B, the quarterback, and it shows. Nick Fitzgerald is, is a completely incompetent passer this year. He just cannot throw the football. LSU, on the other hand, continues to look like an extremely well-coached team for what they want to do and how they want to play. This is never going to be, maybe I shouldn't say never, but with Ed Orgeron at the helm, like some sort of complete team juggernaut. They're going to play close games like this, but they are they are playing very good football. There's no denying LSU at this point in time. They have a massive match coming up with Alabama in two weeks. At one point, I would have thought they'd lose by 50. Maybe now they'll lose by 17, and that'll be moderately heroic. I have no idea. Tons of momentum. I'm still not concerned about Moorhead. I think it's just a, miss, a mismatch and a marriage there, but clearly it does illustrate something, Alan. Dan Mullen, obviously, much more skilled than Joe Moorhead at operating with a, a flawed roster, if you will. He can go outside of the box. Also, Mullen, very good with a running quarterback who can't throw. A couple of things on, on display there. Yeah, I, I think Mullen's proven that he can take advantage of that particular you know, skill set and running the quarterback to punish you. You know, Moorhead doesn't look like he knows what he's doing, and then that makes Fitzgerald tentative. You're right. Uh, LSU, I'm, I still think they're going to get destroyed by Bama. They're they're too one dimensional on offense, and you know the defense is legit, but I don't think that they're. I don't think Tua is going to have too much of a problem with them. We'll see though. Yeah, that will be a very fun one, November third. Oregon, a team that I really thought was on the upswing. Tough, Me too. Tough game against Washington State. Very hard to go and win at Washington State. They got handled throughout this game, made a ferocious comeback to make it a game, and the Washington State had a gutty drive to score and win. Very fun game, very entertaining game, yeah. uh, even though it was lopsided for most of it. I love that game day went there finally. If you saw the clips of you know, the Cougar riding in, waving the flag, people were amped. There were a ton of people there. That's the power of college football. Love it. Disappointment for Oregon, but that's, you know, on the road against a tough team in a hype environment, that stuff's going to happen. Like you said, it's college football. It's unpredictable. So fun for Washington State, though, to get that win. All right, let's look at the rest of the games from the SEC. Ugh, I hope you didn't watch any of this one. Tulsa 0, Arkansas 23. Yeah, I think I saw about 10 seconds of that one. But uh, I guess any win's a good win for Arkansas at this point in time. They do seem to be getting better as the year goes on. Auburn 31, Ole Miss 16. Auburn riding the ship or Ole Miss just being pathetic? I continue to think Ole Miss is actually pretty good. I know that you like to rail on them and I like to pump them up, but I think that what they're doing, given the the situation, the scholarship reductions, the penalties, is, is admirable. It's a close game for a long time. I think their quarterback could be, bold statement coming here, maybe the best pure quarterback in the SEC as far as NFL potential goes. Uh, he's got everything you'd ever want. He's, he's younger, but either way. He's interesting. I like him. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy to watch. But either way, yeah, Auburn, not right in the ship. Auburn is, is not in good shape, and I think that – According to our good friend Chris Musgrove, there are very serious talks that one Gus Malzahn may not survive this football season. It seems incredible given the buyout nature, but apparently maybe not. That's insanity. It's a special breed of Auburn insanity to hand a guy $21 million buyout and then fire him literally the next season. They might do it. Memphis 33, Missouri 65. James... Missouri, every time I want to count them out, they turn around and do something nice. I'm just going to keep saying it. I think Missouri's good. And uh, there's going to be a surprise little nugget at the end of this show when you learn what the line is for the upcoming Missouri game this weekend. And spoiler alert, there are several lines this weekend where there's a top 15 team as a significant underdog to an unranked team. 
So a very interesting week of college football. Uh, this probably should make you think one thing. UCF should stop with their claims of being able to beat whoever they want to beat. UCF 31, Memphis 30. Missouri 65, Memphis 33. Missouri is not exactly Alabama or Clemson or anyone else. Now, does that mean UCF could not compete in a one-game scenario? No, it's not what I'm saying. Love the underdog. But I do think it illustrates something that's already happened in the polls this past week, Alan. That Memphis game is going to really hurt UCF's chances of making any kind of college playoff. Get out of here, UCF. I'm done with you. All right. Vandy 7, Kentucky 14. This was an extremely close game all the way throughout. And this is what Kentucky does. Their defense is absolutely fantastic, and their offense is high school-ish like we know. Each week, I think teams are catching on more and more as to what Kentucky wants to do, and they're finding better and better ways to stop it. I don't think Kentucky is going to be able to maintain its momentum to potentially win the SEC East, even though right now, if we beat Georgia this weekend, they are in the proverbial driver's seat. I don't see it happening. They're just too limited. But either way, a great season for them nonetheless. They, I mean, they have a. They have to beat Georgia or they wouldn't, I guess. No, they would. Who knows the scenarios? But I don't think they're going to beat Georgia regardless, unless Georgia just implodes. And they also so. play Missouri this week, which could True. be a big tester of who does what. All right, let's hop into the mailbag questions. Thanks so much for all of your questions. We got some great questions. In fact, this is the first time that nearly every single person who asked a question asked a unique question. We had very Good few job. overlapping questions. So our, our audience, of course, very intelligent. Uh, we'll start with a question from Chris Morales. And it's about a ghost, if you will. The ghost of Emory Jones. Where has this guy been? The question is, does his lack of playing time worry us at all? And, of course, he indicates that most people, including ourselves, expect that he would play Tebow-like minutes during his freshman season. Yeah, very concerned. In fact, I'm of the opinion right now that you probably will never see Emory Jones starting at the University of Florida I mentioned on the pod that if he wasn't starting at the beginning of this season, it would be a huge problem for the program and for him, just meaning that we would have a misfit at quarterback. Uh, I think now it's become a huge problem for him. And unless something miraculous happens, uh, it seems hard to see Emory Jones being the quarterback. I will also mention to you, there's a little bit of inside information here behind this point. Uh, Several people I know that have gone to many practices that are, I consider, informed college opinions, guys who have played and observed seem to think that Emory is almost hopeless at this point in time. He's a freshman, things can change. But if you had to prognosticate right now Emory Jones's future at Florida, it's very bleak. Very, very bleak. Well, yes, of course it's super disconcerting. I think they would have put him in there, especially with the redshirt rule allowing you to get some action to see if he could have done something meaningful, if he was at all... Ready to go. He's, he wouldn't be your primary backup anyway. There's no harm in running him out there. I think you're right. I, I think this casts doubt to where he can ever play. You know, because that's the nature of the quarterback system right now, too. If this was the old days, he probably would potentially play as like a redshirt junior. Maybe he would have the opportunity to develop and he would stick around. You know, if he can't beat out Felipe Franks heading in this offseason, you know, that's the way things work. He's going to transfer. Most likely. Um, because obviously there's plenty of time to be had. Felipe Franks has been steady, but he hasn't been lighting the world on fire, of course. If this guy was a hot shot freshman like we hoped he could be, he'd be seeing the field, um, I assume. Uh, so that's disappointing. That was a big get. I remember waiting on pins and needles for his announcement. It felt like Dan Mullen pulled one out of his hat 
you know, a big coup and uh, it just really hasn't worked out. And sometimes that happens, you know, and that's why you got to recruit in volume. It's just sucks at the quarterback position where you can't take too many guys. If you miss on one, that, that can hurt you. Speaking of that, Jeffrey Hoy, what up, Jeffrey, says, what are your gut feelings regarding the future of our QB position? When do you think we'll finally get an elite QB? Is it most likely that we're stuck with Franks for 2019? Do you think he'll be anything more than a game manager? Any chance Jalen Jones, next year's uh, commitment, could come in and start next year? Also, is there any chance Justin Fields transfers to us? Wishful thinking, probably. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you for 35 questions in one. <laughs> I love it, though. Get, that, that's a lot of thoughts in there, and we're going to tackle each one of these. That's fantastic, actually. You covered the QB position. I'm, I'm just going to go uh, with brevity with each one. Gut feelings towards the future of the QB position, bad. Average is then what I'm going to say. So bad meaning I don't think there's going to be a top-level guy in the next two years, so therefore bad. But average in that I think Dan Mullen's proven he can take some misfit scenarios and make them competent. Uh, when will we get into league QB is a great question. I, I, I don't think the local guy, uh, Richardson is, is elite uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He's a three-star dual threat guy. Uh, Jalen Jones potentially could be a guy that's higher ranked, higher thought of. I have not dove into the film yet. I tend to wait until guys are actually in the program to look. So I can't give you an informed opinion there. Um, Frank's for 2019 is a great question. There is a narrative here where Franks could take a tremendous leap during this offseason. That's when it would happen. That's when it should happen. So I will say that there is a shot. It's most likely, probability-wise, that Franks will be your quarterback again next season and that he will probably be similar but slightly upgraded to what he is this season. But again, I will say, you would expect a lot of development in year two for Franks. He obviously has the arm talent to do it. I think the question is whether or not he has it in between his ears as to whether or not we can get there. And Justin Fields transferring us is a complete and utter pipe dream. He will almost in all certainty, the way Georgia is going, be their starting quarterback as early as next week if they lose to us this weekend and as late as next year, I think, depending on where this season goes for them, which will be an eventual loss to Alabama in the SC title game, I would imagine. Uh, in that situation. So keep an eye on that one, but no, I don't think there's any chance Justin Fields comes to Florida. Yeah, if, if you're not happy with Franks right now, and none of us are super thrilled, this is going to be, I think, our future. That's the the downfall of missing on Emory Jones. Not that he just couldn't come in and play this year, but that means he probably is not going to play next year. And then to be asking a lot, you'd be kind of running the same thing back with a, a true freshman in Jalen Jones coming in and starting as a true freshman over a guy like Felipe, who's had a lot of experience and that's just probably not likely to happen unless he just comes in and lights the world on fire and you never really count on that. So it puts us in a bind. Um, the, the elite QB you're looking for, unless it's Jalen Jones is probably further down the way. Um, yeah. And Justin Fields, I, I don't think so. It's so crazy with Georgia that they're going to do this two years in a row where they're going to have, five-star QB who's had success that gets unseated by the next guy. Does that good for them recruiting wise, bad for them recruiting wise? I think it's poor. I think like you mentioned, you want to recruit guys, especially I think in the modern era. And I think you'll see more of this. You're probably going to start to see Alan, like five-star, three-star, five-star, three-star. And you try to find a guy that will be a, ca a capable, competent team guy. Guy grows up loving Georgia that's where he wants to be. 
you have the conversation. I'm going to give you a chance to compete. There's plenty of Rex Grossman's in the world and kind of gauge how serious this guy is about committing to the program. If he was a backup, uh, I, I just, you want to have two or three, five stars competing for the job. That's technically important. Like we talk about building your depth, but people transfer so fast. Then you're like Clemson where you five star transfers before the season, a guy loses the job, transfers midseason, and all of a sudden you have a true freshman and a guy who's never taken any snaps. Correct. And so I, I think you're in this weird stage where you're probably going to have to kind of intelligently build out how it goes and roll the dice with the five-star you like. Uh, you can handle the transfers, of course, market-wise, but it does create a distraction on the team. One one other note on Florida's quarterback situation, Alan, I think you hit the nail on the head. We're in this weird stage of development. We have a guy like Franks who's compelling. It should always be noted that in the very first podcast, we talked about Franks when it was a recruiting episode and he came. He was a deep project guy. That's what we mentioned. You watched the film on Franks. He had, it was going to take a lot of time. He to played get to way earlier than they would want him to, to get you where you wanted him to go. He always had the really appealing arm talent. So as much on this show as I have been hard on Felipe Franks, it should be known that this guy was supposed to be just what he is right now, which is a project guy. I think the problem, like we said, is you got enough film on him now where the reads are so far, it seems difficult for him to close that gap. But it's not impossible. And, and I, I'd be the first to say that he's managing the simple task he's been given well this year. That's, that's a major step from last year. If he can become a, a good quarterback, which is a hard step for college guys to go from like you know average game manager to good, then we could really be something because he has talent to do it. So he's going to be your best bet, though. I think that's really the answer to your question is if you're looking at the next year, very hard seeing anybody beating Franks out. All right, Jack Lenati has a question. Two questions. I love this one first. He knows I'm a metric guy, so he references that. And then asks if I take into account things as swag or underdogness, which I like, circumstance, etc. Essentially saying, like, for example, it's hard to beat a team twice in a season, right? Maybe the numbers don't say that, but it's difficult. Oh, for sure. For sure. And Jack, in fact, I'm a huge believer in human behavior being the largest predictor uh, of almost any field, whether it's investment management or it's football, the human element is massive. I think the metrics help to inform that, but you have to take into account those things. They certainly matter a lot. And if you look at beating a team twice in a season, you have you have A, the knowledge you gain from playing an opponent, which is significant in a game like football. What do you like to run? How do they run it? Who do they rely on? That helps a lot. And then B, the psychological benefit you get if you were close with them or if you feel like you can compete with them, it, it removes maybe some of the fear a college player has and it removes some of the mystique. It's like seeing Jaws when you watch Jaws for the first time and you see the full shark. It's like no longer scary. Like you know what's there. So th- those things absolutely matter. The problem is if you're looking at them when evaluating a game, they're almost impossible to predictively quantify. So you tend to stay away from them. They're also really poor to look at historically and look at the game and point the finger at the fact that that team had more swag than the other one. The numbers tend to be more reliable, but no doubt those are large factors in sports. Alan, he says, seems like you're more of a feeler. I appreciate that. That's funny. Maybe, I guess, in comparison to you, and you tend to talk about the metrics, I, I tend to be more personnel-oriented, so that's kind of funny. But yes, compared to James, certainly. Yeah, so Alan, more the feeler. During the coaching search, uh, Jack said he was, quote, hyperventilating over a possible Chip Kelly or Scott Frost, hire, Scott Frost hire. Now that we have more data, Alan, how have your feelings changed? And if you could, would you switch one of those coaches for Dan Mullen? That's a great question. I, I think it's interesting. I think James is actually higher on Chip. Kelly than I was. I kind of came around and got excited about it because the ceiling was so intriguing to me. 
Scott Frost was the guy I really wanted all along. Um, so I would not change for Chip Kelly, even though he's starting to slowly piece it together there. But if you're worried about recruiting, I, th- I still think they're like the 87th ranked recruiting class or whatever they are. Scott Frost is interesting. Won their first game. So if you're looking just the one loss record, we're hugely winning right there. But they should have won some more games. I, I still think Scott Frost is gonna put is gonna do it there in Nebraska. And by do it, I don't think he's gonna become like Urban Meyer and win, you know, two out of three championships. But I think he's gonna be really successful and they're gonna be really prolific and Nebraska football will be quote unquote back. Do would I switch it if I could? Oh man. If you ask me this right now, I'm gonna say yes. I still think the sky is so high with him and he's younger that maybe I would want to roll the dice. And that leads us into the next question from Jack, which is really interesting to me now. James, if you if Dan Mullen was a relative unknown coming into the season, um, would you be more excited about where our program is headed given – where we were the last six years. In other words, isn't he hit, hitting the data points of an elite coach trajectory? So Dan Mullen, we don't, we don't know about him. We're not like, oh, he's kind of this way. We just hire this guy and he's come in and done this stuff. Would you be more excited? Yeah, let's say Dan Mullen is Kirby Smart, right? Right. No data on him as a coach. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because you wouldn't have the two things out there that, that have always put a cap on him for me. Now, interestingly enough, it should be said that I've actually gotten a few, a few pieces of feedback mail that are entertaining to me because I don't ever feel like I'm negative, but you'll get some comments like, hey, first time listener to the podcast, tune into the pod, wasn't really looking to listen to a podcast that was critical of my own team. You know, I wanted some more fluff and some positivity, and I thought, that's kind of funny. Last year, I picked us to win a million games, so the positivity is there. But I think with Dan, you know, and the reason we do this pod is to give you our own thoughts, which sometimes differ significantly from the national media or others. And for me, those two things are the offensive style, which does not rely on explosive plays and, and, and historically has not done a good job against elite opponents. And then B, the, the recruiting question. The recruiting question is a big one. At Mississippi State, you cannot be expected to recruit elite talent, but there's still a huge question of can he recruit it when he's here. That question would also be true of Scott Frost or Chip Kelly or anyone else, but those two questions were there. Kirby Smart was known to be an excellent recruiter. That was his MO at Alabama. That was a known thing. Mullen has always been known as the opposite. So if we didn't know about some of the coaching angles, but you knew maybe he wasn't a great recruiter, more of an unknown, yeah, I think he'd be really excited right now. As far as the elite coaching trajectory, he's still not projecting there, but year ones don't matter record-wise at all. Right. Scott Frost went winless. You, I could go on forever. I've done a whole episode on this. Um, the main reason he's not tracking elite right now is his year two recruiting class, or his year one, as you could call it. Year zero would be the half one. Year one's this one. Is, is behind. There's still time left, but it's behind what you would look at with the elite recruiters of the game. Doesn't mean he can't get there. Doesn't mean he can't be elite yet. It's only year one. Um, but he's he's certainly managing the resources really, really well. And, and I would answer the question of would I take Scott Frost over him? Yes, I still would. I think none of what Dan has done this year is surprising to me. I don't think it's surprising to Allen either, even though it exceeds our expectations. This was well in the wrong possibility to me for what he could do. We have to see if he can answer these other questions later. He can't answer these questions this week either, Alan. No. He's not supposed to beat Georgia this year. Uh, he's not supposed to be able to compete there. This is not going to be a death nail to his offense. 
if we don't move the ball against Georgia extremely well. Uh, none of that stuff is necessarily true. It's it's still year one, but but all good questions there. Would you be more excited if we didn't have as much data on him? Maybe much as personal experience, it'd feel a little better. Maybe probably right. I'm, I guess so. That's the weird human psychology of it. I mean, that's that's why the question is interesting. Um, maybe maybe that's maybe I have to say yes, considering my desire to switch in for Scott Frost. So. Now talk about a lack of excitement question here. Thank you for this one. Jeremy Bloor asks, if you had to pick one of them, and we all know the answer to this one, right? Would you choose Muschamp or McIlwain? Muschamp. Yeah, I mean... Hands down. You know, I, I still think Muschamp, I, I don't think he's ever going to be great. There would still be the small, small question of a, at a place like Florida. If you just kept churning out top five recruiting classes and you got the right coordinators, that he would learn enough to do it. McElwain seems like a lost cause. Yeah, at least Muschamp is like a guy you can shake hands with and sure. look at and respect at some level. Okay, Diego Rivera, Ben Coppinger asked sort of the same question. James has combined them here. With the season going as well as it has, what's your point of view of recruiting? Lots of people seem to think that our numbers not looking great was a wait-and-see approach by recruits, and once that good results came, better elite-level recruits would commit. So far, that hasn't been the case. Do you pay do you pay attention to that right now? Are you worried about it right now as you were at the beginning of the season? How concerned should we be that we're not closing the deal on some of our big targets even after that LSU game experience in a pack swamp? There's two things that come to mind here. One, yes, I'm concerned. I will continue to remain concerned. I'm just as concerned as I was at the beginning of the season because you have to have a certain percentage of top 100 players to win a national championship. That is crucial. You basically have no historical evidence to indicate you can do it without that and what you consider to be the the most modern football era, the one where we've been following players closely. Recruiting exists in the way it does now with the world of Twitter and everything else. So you got to have that. We don't have that. We're not trending towards getting that. It seems like that would be incredible if we got that. I think it's very likely we're going to finish between 8 and 13, which is like a tier three, you know, recruiting class for our rivals. It's just too hard to win. I think national titles with that kind of scenario, you could, it's hard. No one's done it. So one, I'm concerned. Two, this is where you can build a case for Mullen. Recruiting now more so than ever is a two to three year relationship game. And so Mullen jumps in late at Florida. He's now beginning these relationships with these kids who have already had one to two years with Florida State or Tennessee or Alabama or Auburn or whoever you want to pick your guys, right? UCF, right? He's late into that game. So I'm going to give you the perfect example of how this works. Mike White, the question we had from Mike White on this very podcast, our basketball coach, was can Mike White recruit? And here we are now in year four of Mike White. Is this year four of Mike yes, White? Yes, I believe so. And we're, we're signing maybe the best recruiting class we've ever signed for basketball, right? And he had to build those relationships with the coaches. So Mullen has that argument going for him. Lastly, Kirby Smart, the guy people talk about, I talk about, his year two recruiting class was, or year one, if you want to call it that, after year zero, was absolutely phenomenal. Number one in the, one in the nation, buck the trend. He was very fortunate to have one of the most talented recruiting classes in the history of the state of Georgia to pull from. That helped. I'm not diminishing what he did at all, but that helped. So concerned, yes, I think you should be concerned. Don't lull yourself to sleep thinking that recruiting, in my opinion, is something that you can just get numbers 10 to 15 for and win i think chris peterson at washington is one of the best coaches in the game and he's consistently playing with a 20th or so best talent and look what happens to him there's just only so much you can do you've got to have those guys 
So, I, yes, I think an overall level of, for me, it's like a low-level concern. Like, it hasn't been proven, so I want to wait and see, can he do it? Now, the LSU game is interesting. Um, and, you know, you maybe would think, like, after that, we had a ton of people in. And maybe those guys are going to go ahead and commit. This isn't a high commitment time around the country. You don't see a lot of guys popping, you know, and up on your radar and committing. The The season for high school football is in full swing. Once that ends, I think you'll see a lot of movement. Um, so maybe it's concerning or maybe it's not a big deal at all. And no one was going to commit regardless of what we did, good or bad, um, because it wasn't in the right time frame. So... James, I think you're right. We're probably going to end up in that 18, 8 to 13 range. If we don't, that means things went kind of bad. If we do, it's probably because they went good. So that's a optimistic, you know, I think, expectation for them. And, you know, that's not what we want, but I don't think it's a McElwain-like regression, you know. And so I, if you're a panic button person, I guess you feel free. Hit the panic button. For me, I, I'm not, so I'm I'm not. All right, Tyler Pierce asks, which is more true? Florida is playing better at football to be ranked in the top 10, or the state of college football is such that there's no real competition outside the top six. So you can look at that as like a tier system. You've got your top five or six, and there's still like a massive cliff, right, for the two, right. two teams. I would say a little bit of both. Um, that win over LSU just looks better and better, obviously. And, you know, the loss to Kentucky is a legit, I guess, loss. They continue to play well. They they haven't fallen off. So, yes, I mean, it, the problem is, you know, anytime you would say a rank, gosh, I can't believe this so-and-so team is ranked here. Well, the problem is who are you putting in front of them? You know, somebody's got to be right there. You know, I think, as James mentioned, tier system, there's pro- without really looking at it, examining, I would bet that, you know, from 7 to 16, there's probably like a range where you could just jump all those teams up and they're relatively equal. Um, or maybe that range is really big. Maybe it goes like nine to 25, you know, and all those things are pretty fluid. Um, I think very clear to me, if you were doing like a real tiered ranking, be Alabama at one and there'd be a lot of spots before I would put anybody at number two. So that the actually second ranked team would be like number 10 if you're using that kind of system. So Florida, are we the 10th best team? Maybe, probably we'll find out a little bit more this weekend. Yeah, I think that's the the real question is the one you just asked, Alan, is Alabama is is so obfuscating what we should be doing with these rankings because you look at Alabama and you look at everyone else and everyone else seems terrible compared to Alabama. If you could wave a wand and get rid of Alabama and they were no longer your benchmark, then how do you view this question? All of a sudden, it probably looks like a lot of parity and some teams that are slightly stronger than others. But could Florida beat Clemson on any given day? Probably. Maybe only one out of five times, but they probably could do it. Freshman quarterback, etc. Regardless, I just feel like college football with Alabama is different than college football without Alabama. And right now, you have one long way down. Maybe Clemson. Maybe Notre Dame. I don't think LSU. Maybe who who yeah, do you like you, after that? I don't know. And then and then it seems like everyone, like like literally everyone else is like right in there. That's in the ranked components. Like, can you separate Florida and Texas? Can you well, separate? I don't even know Florida and App State. Is it your gut though? Without really looking at it, that Florida at number nine is overrated. Yes, 
But it's my gut that LSU at number four, wherever they are, is Certainly. overrated vastly. Certainly. But okay. I think that's partially You're because right. and that's, Alabama yeah, the scale is, is wrecking us. Yeah. It's like an NFL team, and it's not supposed to be. It makes the other teams look like college teams when the best team is perfect. I don't know. It seems odd. All right, let's keep moving. Esteban writes, how terrified should FSU fans be right now? Please wax poetic on this topic. I don't know if they should be that terrified anymore. I, it seems, Are you impressed by that Demon Deacons win? I mean, Wake Forest is terrible, but clearly Florida State's getting better. I think at this point in time, you can't deny they are. They're still not good. I mean, you should be terrified, yes, is the answer. But how terrified should you be depends on what you're thinking. If you thought that you were going to get someone who's better than Jimbo Fisher, then you should be digging yourself into <laughs> a deep hole. And, and extremely terrified. If you were realistic and thought you're going to get a recruiter who's more of a rah-rah guy, not a great coach, and maybe every so often has like a really talented team that does well, maybe that's starting to look like that's possible. We're going to find out a lot about Florida State this weekend, if they've actually gotten better or not. They play Clemson. But yeah, you should be afraid. And I think most Florida State fans are, are vastly underestimating how hard it is to be good in college football and how quickly you become irrelevant. So maybe that's, the, the, that's what I think about for them, is that they should recognize that they're on the door of relevancy and it does not take long to get there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't like seeing them win kind of comfortably. And then, you know, they came back against Miami, but they were up big in that game. Or Miami came back against them, but they were up big in that game. I think they are getting better. The back half of their schedule has some difficult games, so there's still a chance for them to fall on their face. We'll see. They, they picked up a couple wins. That Louisville win, gosh, they, you know, suck that one out so that's unfortunate if you're um you know anti-fsu fan like we are i don't know they if you're hoping for a return to like a bobby bowden jimbo fisher level of dominance then go ahead and like rip up that bet um but maybe not as just train wreck terrible as they looked against you know the first couple games of the season where they could do nothing they have too much talent to be that bad week to week. Now, again, they could lose a bunch more games, and I hope they do. Uh, but I don't know. I guess it's a bright spot when you beat Wake Forest kind of handily. Good job, FSU. Yeah, good job, but we still hate you. Uh, Philip, Philip Bowerman asks, and this question is exclusively for you, and it's a good one. So the current students that are here, most most people like myself did not become Gator fans until they got into the University of Florida or they had a friend like them or whatever. At some point in time in your modern history, you become a fan. You're kind of ignorant to the previous history of the Gators, aside from a few clips here and there. Good question here, Alan. If you're a current student or let's say a younger Gator fan or shoot, you're a 50-year-old Gator fan and you hadn't watched Gator games until recently, what five or 10 games should you watch from Florida's history to sort of get a feel for the most momentous, if you will, Florida football games? Well, first I want to tackle you. You left out the first part of his question. It's like, why should someone be a, a Florida fan if they weren't raised liking the Gators, despite the fact they go to the university? So listen, out there, if you're a college student listening, the only real reason to like a college sports team is because you went there. Every other reason is secondary. When you go to that school, it's like you're marrying that school. That's part of your identity. You leave behind previous allegiances. James, you know, self-identified Miami Hurricanes fan. We forgive him for that error. And we embrace him in. You know, he's seen the light. So when you come to a school, that's your people. Those are your classmates out on the field. 
this university represents you. That's why it's tough when your university does something really dumb is because then that reflects poorly on you. If you're just a kind of a casual fan, you can be like, oh, well, I guess I'm done with them. We can't ever go, I didn't go to the University of Florida. Those aren't my people. So these are your people. Jump in. Both feet in, you know, in all kinds of weather, that kind of stuff. So quickly about some games. Um, I'd love for you to watch a game from the Spurrier era. One of the early ones, the win over Kentucky. Famously, Chris Doring catches the pass in the end zone. It's pretty hyped. If you want to watch the 1996 championship game, so after the 96 season, so I guess technically the 97 Sugar Bowl where we pound FSU, that's a classic. Um, Something from the Rex Grossman era, him flinging it around. I don't have a specific game in mind. Um, Those are all bright points from the Spurrier era. And then the Urban Meyer era. Gosh, there's so many. Um, some of the early Tebow days, his, his freshman year against Tennessee is an epic win. Um, run and train on Ohio State in the national championship, of course, in 2006. And I don't know, There's there's been some fun ones recently. Uh, but if you want to look at the glory days, those were, those were where I would point you first. Um, the field goal block against South Carolina in 2006 that kept alive a national championship. Any various steamrollings of Georgia during the um, Spurrier years where we basically won every year except for 1997 was a bad time to be a Georgia fan. Uh, So look those up as well. James, anything you would add to that? There's a couple of momentous things that I think you want to watch to like appreciate Florida. So there's the Jabbar Gaffney catch from Rex Grossman or Jesse Palmer, I think it actually was, in 2000. At Tennessee. At Tennessee. And Still he, hotly he debated. caught the ball for like a nanosecond, but they called it a touchdown. Uh, just really a, fant- a fantastic insight into what was then a really heated rivalry. Any of the Florida-Tennessee games that involved Peyton Manning and Florida were incredible. That's great. If you're looking at that era. And then like Alan said, the modern era, of course, you want to watch the Ole Miss game with Tim Tebow. You want to see the loss. You want to see you know what, what prompted the speech and sort of what really launched Tim Tebow lore. I think the, the key, like, like Alan said, is you could almost pick any game you wanted in the middle of the urban era, uh, the Spurrier era to get the highlights. And then you'd probably want to go back, you know, and, and check out, I think, a game from each decade. Uh, you want to see what it looked like in the 80s when Florida was check out Emmett Smith. a floundering program, and then you get Emmett, right? And then I think you want to look at the Ron Zook era to kind of get an idea of what it felt like when the program went down, uh, you know, particularly watching a game maybe in the 2004 range, kind of what does that look like? Uh, and then, and then I think you you clearly have probably felt the pain of the of the Mush Champ and McElwain eras. But it's good as a fan, I think, to kind of look at each regime for a game or so, so you're not just staring at the highlights. But historically, I think we've named some of the biggest moments uh, that, that you could watch. And of course, you could want to watch the bad ones too. You know, we blew a massive lead against Florida State, 1993. Soul soul crushing. Uh, for any kind of Gator fan. Again, for me, I was a Hurricane fan. But looking back on it now as a Gator fan, I can imagine yeah, what if that you must have watch. felt like against your bitter rival to give up that kind of lead. But it's important to know that because yeah. it kind of sets a stage for how if you're a 40- or 50-year-old Florida fan, that game is is still brutal to you when you recall the memories of that one. If you want to see the game that uh, ended ACC refs from refereeing in the Swamp, you can check out the 2000, 2003 FSU game, Swindle in the Swamp. Even, you know, the 96 game, the first game at FSU where we lost after they abused Danny Werfel and we came back and won. That will make it that much sweeter. Um, yeah, a lot of lots of up and downs over the years, but mostly ups over the Spurrier and Meyer years. Um, maybe the best game 
if you're just a, you know, I guess the unbiased or, you know, objective fan, you don't care about Florida or LSU, go watch the 2007 Florida LSU game. Epic, epic game. Uh, we lost, spoiler alert, but fantastic game. Incredible game. Tyler Rummery, the Gator Nation football podcast's first and original fan, as he is, Welcome, Tyler. As he is known as, asks, is it more important to recruit at a top five level consistently than being an elite coach and recruiting at a top 15 level, let's say? Uh, that's a great question. It's sort of difficult because you're not giving us the other end of it. So I'm going to assume you're saying you're a top five recruiter and a good coach versus an elite coach and a top 15 recruiter. Which one's better? I think they're probably equal, but I think being a good coach and a top five recruiter consistently gives you a better chance of winning a national title. So the elite coach is going to be very consistent. He's going to win nine, 10 or 11 games almost every year. The good coach may have a few duds in there, but probably also hits a home run with an epic quarterback maybe like a Gene Chizik did with Cam Newton, and maybe steals a national title. Uh, I think that's how I would look at that. So way more variance on the good coach with the talent, but maybe a higher upside variance. So more frustrating, to say the least, but he has a shot. An off shot, the stars align, and he gets something. And I think it creates more frustration in the fan base if you're recruiting at a top five level and underachieving. You know, see Georgia, Mark Richt. Give me the second scenario, I think. Um, I would love that my coach was a tactician and an excellent developer of young men and football players got better. And, you know, I think that gives you a chance to win a national championship. Now, again, this is assuming that there aren't necessarily Alabamas in the world, you know, and hopefully Nick Saban will retire tomorrow. But I think I would rather be in the second camp. I think it's it's more satisfying as a fan to live in that world than the previous one. So that's where I'm at. Okay, Joe Kahn asks, did you know Patrick Mahomes is going to be this good? No, nobody did. But we're, we're, I'm glad you asked this question because we're just going to spend a couple of seconds kind of pimping out the air raid offense, which is my favorite. We've asked the question on the pod, what offense would you wish your coach would run if you could run any offense? And Alan and I spent, I think, a good 15, 20 minutes actually breaking down several systems and how they work. So if you want to catch that pod, it's it's before the season. It's in the off season, But we won't go back through that. But there's a great article that actually came out this year in 2018. If you Google it, Air Raid NFL, uh, you'll find it, one of the top two or three. It's, and it basically talks about how the quarterbacks that are now coming out of the Air Raid system in the NFL are having a lot of success in the NFL primarily because the NFL is running the air raid as a passing concept. The Patriots have been doing this for more than a decade now, so they were just way ahead of the game. But Mahomes is maybe the best ever at it because he can do everything you want. He can run. He's got a rocket for an army smart. But I think the most important thing here is that it's a combination of Mahomes being very good. But more importantly, Alan, it's a combination of the NFL running the same concepts. Mahomes did not come into a system that is entirely different from what he ran at Texas Tech. In fact, it's almost exactly the same, uh, minus a few more complicated jargon and variances. That is not the way it was for those air raid quarterbacks. They used to have to come in and learn entirely different styles of football, made it very hard for them to succeed. People have finally caught on to the fact that the air raid is, in my opinion, the best (laughs) expression of offensive football. It is not a gimmick. It is here to stay. I think it's the future of both college and the NFL. And uh, therefore, you know, I think that that Mahomes is is maybe on pace to be the best NFL quarterback ever. 
too early to say that. I'm not going to say he is, but stats-wise he is. But that's partially changing NFL culture, right, Allen? He's throwing way more passes than other guys have. And also, partially, he's really freaking good. If you haven't watched him play, not an NFL fan, turn on one Chiefs game. I mean, that guy is excellent. He's electric. I freaking love him. I don't know. You're right. He's in the right system with Andy Reid. He has the right people around him to make this work. Uh, they saw something. They knew if we can get this guy and do some of the stuff that we're already doing with Alex Smith and we'll take this to another level. People thought they were crazy for drafting him as high as they did. I was a little skeptical. Those Texas Tech guys you know, haven't worked out as well. But I knew if you ever watched him play, he was unreal. Unreal. I mean, the fact that he can make throws from every angle. He's a little bit like Brett Favre. He's going to put up the stats like Dan Marino. Now, whether his teams will be championship level like a Montana and Brady, you know, if you want to measure it like that, wait and see. But he's going to put up stats for as long as he's healthy. And we'll see. He's slight. Um, He's not your typical 6'5 guy who can take a beating. Can he go the distance in that way? And that that's some of the concern with him. So we'll see. All right. T. Carter at T. Carter Tan asks, name the dono price for a James X's and O's Gator collaboration. I'm essentially guessing that he's talking about how can we get James and the Gators together so that we can be more <laughs> explosive on offense? Because we can't beat, this is his words, can't beat an elite defense I'll uh, call, in the current state. I'll call Dan. I'll put yeah. it together. So I'm not sure how much the dono price would be for that, but... Uh, I'd take a low dono price if I was able to get a meeting with Dave Mullen to talk about that. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe a large dono, uh, but below Alexander Leventhal's level would probably do it. But but anyway, no, I, I appreciate I appreciate the love there. I think that Dan Mullen is a is probably an excellent guy to chat X's and O's about. I, I think he has excellent reasons why he wants to operate the system that he does, and it comes down to philosophical differences, not inarticulate differences, if you will. And it would be a fun discussion because of that. And I'm sure that discussion has been had many times with him and with others. Uh, but regardless, uh, I'd be down. Well, you know, T. Carter Tanier wants to know what is keeping us from being explosive offensively. Some of it's personnel. It's not like Dan doesn't want explosive plays. It's not like he doesn't want all of his, you know, swing passes to go for touchdowns or the runs to go 70 yards. But the offense isn't, pushing the envelope in that way. So like I said, a little physical philosophical differences. We have some of the playmakers to extend those plays. Grimes, Jefferson, Tony, we have some guys that can bust some big plays. So can we do that consistently? Can we block well enough up front to give them the kind of time that's necessary to execute some of those things? And I think our offensive line is holding us back from that. Yeah. And uh, Alan, you mentioned there the, the philosophical difference or the, the fact that he doesn't, he'll say, that he wants 12 to 15 explosive plays a game. He'll say that, but again, history is your best guide when it comes to looking at what people will do in the future. And Dan Mullen's whole personage, minus when he had Tim Tebow at Florida, system was early, people didn't know how to defend it yet, it was a different era than it is now, is that he typically generates among the fewest explosive plays per play in the country every single year. And we're doing it again this year. We are not an explosive team. I'm not saying that to hate. I'm saying that to say that's what the history suggests. Therefore, he does not take a lot of risks. It's been working this year. The margin of error is small. The question I'm going to keep asking is what happens when you're the better team and you get in those situations? You have to take some risks down the field to be able to win championships. You cannot win consistently playing 
very conservative because, again, your Roger Ferrer is too small. It's not difficult in our scheme to generate the explosive plays. All it is is basically turning on the faucet and attempting to hit them. But we don't. We tend to look for the safer play. So keep an eye on that as the competition increases, starting with Georgia this weekend. We'll talk about this in the second half of the pod because LSU generated lots of explosive plays. And one big reason why they were explosive in the run game was because they were throwing vertically in the pass game. James, you mentioned that McElroy, it's Greg McElroy, was not one of your favorite people to call Gator games. Who are your favorites? Any least favorites? You know, I don't have like a favorite. I don't watch a lot of the games on TV, actually. And when I watch the replay of the game on tape, I don't listen to the sound. So that's why I really recognized how much I didn't like Greg McElroy. Um, he's fine. He's fine. He's not. He's not horrible. I don't think he adds a lot. I don't know in college who adds a lot. I mean, I know I love Tony Romo in the NFL. Obviously, I'm not the only one. I think Tony is is fantastic. I've come to like Gary Danielson more. Vern Lundquist, I couldn't stand Vern Lundquist at the end because he didn't know what was going on. So I kind of lumped Gary in there with him. But Gary, although he's kind of folksy, is actually very accurate at predicting what's going to happen next. And when he breaks down a play, he's correct in what happens. So it gets overlooked with Gary. But he actually is very skilled at, at analyzing what's going on. If you listen and you catch it, there's lots of good nuggets there. It's just kind of overlooked. He doesn't have the same sort of quick speech articulation like a Tony Romo has. But but regardless, if I had to say someone in the SEC I listen to as a as a color guy, it's probably Gary at this point in wow. time. Wow, standing for Gary there. I like uh, Herb Street and Fowler. You know, they they don't do a lot of Gator games. The I I tend to find them like reasonable people they're not saying things to just get you up in arms here's the problem anyone any one of these rando color guys who's not a premier guy you guys probably know more about the gators than they do so when they say something that seems like it's like man they really are doing a great job with this guy look how good he's doing it's like no he's not or that was a weird thing that just happened that he never does that it's like, they got to get him the ball more. And it's like, no, actually, we don't. And so, you know, that's hard. It's frustrating when you're like, I know more than this guy, and he's being paid to do it. Well, he's, you know, he's not one of the elite guys probably, and he's only watching the team for a week. So give him some grace. But, you know, maybe, James, you'll get hired one day, and we'll get to listen to you call these games. <laughs> Robert asks us if we can talk about the lack of a big play by Mullen, which we did. And how that compares to someone like Alabama Saban, uh, since he thinks he prefers a similar philosophy. We actually had a little Twitter exchange about this, Robert, but I'll, I'll answer it here for the public. Uh, Nick Saban is more of, a, of an agnostic offensive philosophy guy. Uh, he, he, and he'll be the first to tell you that. He doesn't actually have a system he espouses. I think when he was at Alabama in the early times, he had such a large recruiting edge over everyone else that he played that four strategy that we talked about. And I think you're seeing that Nick Saban, much like Bill Belichick, understands that 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 sports is a, is a game theory concept where you look at who you're competing against and you say, what gives me the greatest probability of winning if I played this season like a thousand times mathematically, right? And you say, that's the best way to go. Okay, great. And then I'll do that and I'll stay one step ahead of my opponents. He's done that. And, and look, he recruited Tua for a reason. Tua did not fit the mold of the other guys he had been recruiting for the past several years. He had also recruited another five-star guy along with Tua. So he was clearly already showing you that he was kind of trying to morph into a more aggressively offensive team. He hired Lane Kiffin for that reason. So I think he's been moving in the explosive play direction. He's been aware that he needs to kick that up. And of course, he's doing it now this year and he's unleashed a, a juggernaut 
in the process. So I would say that Nick Saban doesn't really have an offensive identity. He's matching it to what he thinks his team has and what he thinks will win. Whereas Mullen has a very clear system that he rather rigidly runs. So I would say those two are, are quite different, even if Nick Saban was quote unquote conservative for a portion of his career. He's anything but that now. Why don't you read the next one? Ask it to me. All right, David Crabb. Our friend David Crabb. David Crabb, Dr. David Crabb, unfortunately from his brother-in-law, is the world's biggest UCF supporter and fan, and it drives one David Crabb very crazy. So his question is, if Florida played UCF at UCF, let's say a week from now, right, so we had no special time to prepare, who wins this game, Alan? Man, I don't know. I'm over UCF, but I haven't watched them closely enough because they haven't really played any games that were interesting. They're going to put points up. And I guess the question for me before I really looked at it was, could we score enough to put them out? Is our defense capable of holding them? You know, I, I think they're I – I'd be interested to know what Vegas would say, but I think I would take the Gators. I think our talent level on defense would – match what they're doing on offense. And I don't think that they'd be able to slow us down enough. Um, now you could point back to that Auburn game, but I don't know. I don't trust bowl games, especially with a one up one down kind of relationship like that. Now, if we played UCF in the bowl this year, I think there'd be a lot of motivation on each side and we would get an interesting result there. James, who would you take in this scenario? I'm not sure of the, the five year recruiting ranking, but UCF is like somewhere in the thirties. I think there's a huge talent discrepancy amongst these teams. I think Florida's defense would would cause UCF some significant problems in their passing game. I don't think UCF is as good as they were last year. Yeah, uh, and so I think Florida could could absolutely win this game. I think Florida would be favored in this game, probably by seven to ten points, if I had to guess um, based upon that. It doesn't mean UCF couldn't win this game, especially at an incredibly charged UCF home game where the whole world is watching, and Florida's still not that great. But I think the smart money would tell you that Florida would be the favorite, and you would expect Florida to win, um, and, and that would be accurate, which would make sense. I think UCF's probably like maybe the the 15th to 20th best team in the country. And you can lose that game. And certainly. Florida's right in the same boat, but they're more talented, and so Florida would be favorite Vegas I feel a lot better with Dan Mullen as our coach. If this was Jim McElwain... As our coach, I'd be like, no, we're going to lose. Yeah, Even that's with the same point. talent and yeah. the same person. Yeah, I would agree with that. A lot of that's to do with that. And I think the big thing for UCF fans to recognize is if they had to play in the SEC, they would lose probably four to five games. A one-shot game, anyone can win in college football True. if you're somewhat close. If you're within a 13 to 14-point underdog, you can win that game. And UCF would be that against most everyone not named Alabama. Yeah, just swap, just swap out the schedules right. for Florida and UCF this year. They have to play our slate. We get to play their slate. We're going to go undefeated. It's not that big of an accomplishment. I mean, anytime you can just win all your games, it is an accomplishment. You should be congratulated. But there's probably 30 teams in the country could run that slate. doesn't mean they should be the national championship. Get out of here. Exactly. Get out of here is right. All right. All right I'll, I'll do the next one here. Scott Poyer asks, what do you guys think is the ceiling for this team? Is the SEC championship game a reasonable expectation? Now, that a lot rides on what we think is going to happen in Georgia. But reasonable, James? A reasonable no. <laughs> Whatever word I want to say. I'm trying to think of what probability word I want to say Possible? Here. Possible, yes. Yeah, reasonable no. Possible, yes. 
surprising at this point in time right now from today if we were in the SEC championship game? No, not surprising. So you're you're hovering right around there. It's not a reasonable expectation, though. This team's goals before the season should have never been to go to the SEC title game. Should not have been. Finishing second in the SEC should be the goal, in my opinion, for this team this year. And that would have been a lofty goal from the start of the season. Most of us are picked fourth, I think, right? Third or fourth. Uh, so second would have been great. We're, we're strongly looking like that's a possibility. We're contending for that. Anything above that's a bonus. The ceiling, I think I, think I said 10 wins. We say 9 or 10, right? We push 10 in our dream ceiling scenario. That still feels right to me. Yeah. Uh, I suppose you could you could start like really drinking the Kool-Aid and think, well, I just don't think so. I think Missouri is going to give us problems. I think Georgia is going to give us problems this week. Uh, you know, you never know what Florida State's going to be like towards the end of that time. They're still more talented than we are. So I still think like 10 wins feels like the ceiling to me. Anything above that seems insane. We yeah. could get there. We only need four more wins, right? We could totally get there. I mean, stuff is reversed. Before, eight wins felt like, man, that would be a good season. Now, eight wins would be... A very disappointing finish. The ceiling, I guess. I don't know. Eleven wins, but that feels tough. So I guess eleven. But I don't think you're gonna if you're if you're harboring small hopes that we would beat Alabama and make the playoff and make a run two thousand six wise. I don't I don't think that's in the cards. So I guess technically eleven wins would be the ceiling. If you win this week, 11 is possible, certainly. So if we're saying it's possible, that would be the ceiling. Okay, a question live from Alan in studio to you, James. Which situation would you prefer? We beat Georgia, win the SEC East, go and lose to Bama or whatever, but we lose to FSU. Or we lose to Georgia, You know, win all the other games, and beat FSU and don't go to the SEC championship? Man, that's a, that's a good question. I've got to take beating Georgia and losing to FSU, which would be really frustrating. I'm putting myself in the proper mindset of winning all the games to get to FSU and like riding super high and like believing and drinking every piece of every you know ounce of Kool-Aid I can and then losing to a Willie Taggart FSU team would be really, really hurtful. But the, the reverse scenario is less exciting for me so if we lose to georgia carry on beat florida state whatever georgia still wins the east again and georgia right now is the if alabama's the death star then georgia's like the what is it what's what's the what's the movie where they built the second death star the uh, rogue one is that it well that's beforehand no, but you're but, thinking but it's beforehand but that's what it's like right so return of the jedi they build the, another death it's star. the new death star yeah it's the emerging death star thank you return of the jedi i need down for my star wars knowledge it's it's the return of the jedi death star it's like it's the emerging death star and maybe we blow it up right now like haha they don't get they don't get a year to win i would take that i think that i want to be florida state i hate florida state but georgia is the emerging massive monster threat and it feels like florida state's trending the other way so I guess I'm saying I feel like we'll get Florida State for the foreseeable future. I feel like Georgia, take them whenever I can get them. I want to get them because it feels like we're fighting an uphill battle I, against them. I'm going to go opposite. I don't know if I can stomach a loss to this FSU team in this scenario. We're not supposed to beat Georgia. If we're competitive, that would be great. We got blown out last year. Losing to FSU in their current state would just be kind of humiliating and maybe they get better, but as it looks from right here, we've lost. I don't. I don't want to even think in my mind how many we've lost in a row. To add on another one that in this year, 
feels like too much to me, I'm going to go scenario B. Maybe I am too much of a feeler, but that's how I feel in the moment. James, lead us on. All right, Jeff asks a couple more questions here, and then we're finishing up, uh, and then we'll go to our Georgia section, by the way. But hopefully you guys are enjoying this wide variety of, uh, of bi-week questioning we're getting. How much of a concern is the speed and athleticism for Georgia against Mullen's spread offense? He remembers us accurately saying, especially me, that a defense that's vastly superior talent-wise <coughs> could shut us down uh, due to talent and speed. I'll tackle this first piece first. This Georgia defense is not a great Georgia defense. That's step one. Their, their run defense is suspect and weak, which we'll talk about. They do not have elite talent in the linebacking core, which is a major problem when you're dealing with Dan Mullen offense. This would not be, in my opinion, the traditional defensive team on film that would freak out Dan Mullen. So I'm going to put that out there right now. Uh, a lot of the talent you are referring to, they have 14 five-stars on that roster, are not playing right now on defense or anywhere, actually. So just keep that in mind for a second. So I'm going to say it's a concern because Georgia is very athletic on defense. This is not, though, in my opinion, a great defense. LSU has a much better defense than Georgia did, and we were able to manufacture points and yards against LSU. So I don't see this being as difficult of a challenge at LSU, but Jeff, Kirby Smart owns Dan Mullen when he's not at Florida. He absolutely owns him. So we're going to find out which one gives in this situation. I mean, yes, the short answer is how much of concern is their speed and athleticism? A lot. But like you said, I don't, there's no Roquan Smith out there. There's no Leonard Floyd. There's no super high profile talent. They're, all of these guys are talented. And you know what? We moved the ball enough against LSU that showed me we can kind of scheme and grind our way. Now, maybe Kirby says all that stuff you're doing against LSU. Nah, all this other stuff you're doing against Mississippi state. Nah, I'm going to make you do this and we can't do it. I could see a scenario where we can't do anything. I'm hoping that's not the case. I don't think Georgia has the talent to do that, but I'm, I wouldn't put it past them. Okay. Joshua Javieri asks, how many points does Vegas spot the dogs? Now that we're wearing those God awful white helmets. I, I'm a uniform guy. We'll see what the rest of the uniform looks like. I don't hate the white helmets, especially this version of them. I would love to see, like, an, you know, they tease those 1961, 68 kind of throwbacks. I would love one of those, and those have white helmets. So I don't hate the white helmets, but I, it depends on what we're wearing underneath them. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'll say no points. What about you? A couple things here. One, Java, what's up? Uh, two, if we're going to do a white helmet, and in general, I, I really dislike white helmets, especially Florida wearing a white helmet. This is the best edition of it. I don't really like the white throwbacks, which it's, I'm, I'm just more of style over history when it comes to a uniform. If your uniform is really ugly, like the Packers old school uniforms, they're awesome to wear every now and then. I just think ours is just sort of, blech, I don't know, it's, it's a white helmet with an F. Uh, but... The current helmet looks good. It looks like we're still the Gators and we're white. We're also wearing all white. And all white uniforms can be pretty sexy. It's a really clean look. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's a clean, sexy look. I kind of like it. We've never really worn it for Georgia like that before. And the script, the script helmet's on there. So although it's not my preferred combination, I've got to say that I, I think that they're, they're pulling the helmet together with the uniform in a way that should look pretty sharp. So 
maybe circle back with us after the game and see what you think about them. Usually the special uniforms doesn't work well for the team wearing them. I remember Georgia one year getting really hyped. They came out in their regular uniforms and they went back to the locker room. They went came out for warm-ups and they went back to the locker room, came back on the field wearing some special uniforms and we freaking crunched them. So don't get too caught up in that. I, I like uniforms. I like you know what we're going to play. I want it to look clean and nice, but we'll see how it goes. If we get obliterated, we probably won't see them again. Okay, let's look at UGA. Let's do some prep for them. They're 6-1, and one, number 7, versus number 9, like we talked about. That's a crazy, this is a top 10 matchup. UGA is favored by 7. If you remember, we lost 42-7 to seven last year. We didn't talk about it much because the McIlwain hiring, firing, was the big news. Hopefully we didn't hire him again. Dan Mullen, interesting, has won 6 of his last 7 coming off a bye. Does that help in this matchup? We'll see. All right, a little overview on the dogs. Kirby Smart, he's in his third year. You'll recognize some of these names. Jim Chaney, his third year. He's also been in OC a lot of places. Kind of a, you know, not a super high-profile guy, but a successful guy. James Coley is joins him as a co-OC his first year. Was FSU in Miami. Mel Tucker, a guy who's been around a lot of places, including the NFL, is his third year. They have 13 returning starters, 8 on offense, 5 on defense. They're third in the overall talent composite. They've killed it recently, but maybe that doesn't always show up on the field right now. And, of course, UF is 12th. Uh, James notes here that they have 14 five-stars, and we have two. So, um, And those guys aren't exactly the best players on our team either. But interesting talent discrepancy. We'll see if that actually shows up on the field as much as it does in the, in the statistics. Okay, James, as you watch them on film, tell us what you notice. Let's start with the offense. All right, so philosophically, if you're new to the podcast, we'll give you a little refresher. That has not changed, uh, although they do run the ball significantly less than they did last year. They're a pro-style offense. They run a lot of offense out of what is called 10 personnel one running back and four wide receivers. That is their base set, which might seem a little bit unusual for a team that runs the ball as much as they do, but they prefer to run out of the spread. They were 70% run last year. They're 60% this year. They're still a top 20 offense, which made the LSU win that much more surprising. They rely heavily on play action, and when they pass, they, they get big chunks. So kind of a little-known thought on Georgia. You think of Fromm being a distributor, and they're safe. Uh, but they're actually top 10. They were last year, too, in, uh, in average yards per catch. They average almost 10 yards per completion. That, that's a big number, and, and that's primarily off the play action. So the most instructive game to watch was the LSU game. Why? Because LSU beat them. So you can watch the other opponents and what they did, and, and most of them had some success and then not success here. But LSU had a lot of success against Georgia, and the primary reason why is actually very surprising. So if you listen to our LSU podcast, you will recall – LSU runs a 3-4 defense, and they almost exclusively play man the entire game. That is what they do. That's their thing. They've done it forever. Well, much to a lot of people's surprise, including Georgia's, in this game, when it was third down, they almost exclusively rushed three dudes and dropped eight guys into zone coverage. You just do not see LSU do that. That is not something they do. And not only did it work, it completely bamboozled Fromm in the first half. He seemed to have no idea how to beat it. He was frequently throwing into double coverage. 
It's a tactic I expect Georgia to have spent the entire two weeks of their bye week here, this week, upcoming, and last week, to fix because they know we saw it. And Georgia did it even on things like third and four. They were dropping eight guys. I mean, that's almost unheard of against a running team like Georgia. Uh, So LSU had a very, very good feel on film based upon personnel when Georgia was running and when they were passing. They also did an excellent job stopping Georgia's second down play action plays, which is when they typically generate their largest gains. They really minimized the downfield damage there. All in all, this game still was actually very close. The score is sort of miragey with what went on in this game. With uh, Georgia's offense, there were plays there to be made. They missed them narrowly. They took a few bad sacks here and there, knocked themselves out with a fake field goal. Uh, but all in all, the thing I, I'm going to look out the most for is whether or not Grantham, who has dropped into coverage, we talked about it against Joe Burrow and LSU, he's done it before, does the same thing this week. I would expect us to test them early on to see if they've solved those problems. And if they have, I'm sure we'll have a backup plan. But I think that's the biggest key to pull out of Georgia. Other than that, of course, I could state all the obvious things about football that must exist when the line of scrimmage protect against the team running against you, which they want to do. But I think that is probably going to be the key because Georgia's going to get themselves into third and five, third and six pretty frequently. Uh, and can you get off the field in those situations? Normally, we'd play man, we'd be aggressive, we'd blitz. Look to see if we just play coverage with three, which would be pretty unusual for us as well. And yeah, if you're looking for some of their playmakers, of course, expect to see both Fromm and Fields in this game. Fields played some last week. I think they probably wish they would have played him more. Have some great running backs in Swift and Holyfield. Riley Ridley, very dangerous receiver. They got a couple guys who will scare you out there. You got to cover them. We'll see how we hold up on that. Be very, very interesting to see what they do at the QB position coming into this week. They've had a bye week. If they wanted to get Fields more touches, maybe we'll see that. All right, James, on defense, what are they looking to do? Top 25 defense yet again, although this defense, like we mentioned, is not as solid as Georgia's defense last year. Just like last year, they're very, very solid against screen play. It's almost impossible to run a screen against Georgia. They're just very, very well coached on the little flats out, little screen plays. Thankfully, we don't really run a lot of those plays, uh, but they're also solid against bubble screens. So don't expect the stuff we saw working last week or before our bye week when I mentioned heavily that we'd run those running back flares. Uh, That's not going to happen in this game. They're very solid against the pass, especially if you try to throw on uh, DeAndre Baker's side. He's widely regarded as the best corner in football. Uh, Most teams just entirely avoid him and they play towards the other side. Their weakness, and it is a serious weakness this year, is their running game and lack of turnover generation. So they struggle to stop the run. They struggle to generate turnovers. They allow a lot of red zone scores. And amazingly, yet again, after last year, Alan, they do not get pressure on the quarterback, which is pretty surprising to me, given their personnel. But they just cannot get sacks. Very, very weak at generating pressure. They, they almost exclusively cannot generate pressure with just their front four, uh, which, is, which is fantastic for Florida because when we've had time, we've been fairly good at executing. The teams that can get us are the ones that can rush us out of the base defense. Georgia has not shown to be able to do that against the teams that are that are a little better athletically. So that will remain to be to be seen. Uh, they do play 3-4 as their base defense. They play a lot of zone. So Tucker, unlike LSU, Mel likes to play a lot of different complicated zone concepts. Uh, the good thing about this matchup this year is Dan Mullen is keeping things very simple for Franks. He's not going to try to make a full field read. He's going to make most of the calls for him. So hopefully it's going to be the classic first reads not there, throw the ball away, which should help avoid uh, a turnover generation out of that Georgia defense. So the question then becomes, how should we attack them? 
Well, LSU actually put out, I think, the proper blueprint for attacking this Georgia team. You have to be able to run the ball, obviously, because that's their weakness, but you have got to throw vertically. The primary reason LSU hit a lot of big runs in this game was, one, they had a lot of third and fourth and one scenarios that they hit on runs on, which sometimes happens. And two, they opened up Georgia with early vertical throws down the field. And so the Georgia corners could not be nearly as aggressive helping in run defense. That was really affecting them as the game went on. That is something we have obviously not been successful at, throwing vertically. Remains to be seen if we're going to do it in this game. So keep an early eye on that one. And then last, as a tactical situation, most teams, including LSU, are going to almost exclusively throw their freshman corner, Tyson Campbell, who is very talented, but he's nowhere near the level of Baker right now. And so keep your eye on DeAndre Baker and see if we are going away from him with most of our scheme. I would expect that we would. Georgia's best defensive end is Tyler Clark. He's really the only guy getting a lot of pressure for them right now. Uh, He should be going up against Martez Ivy, who's had his moments not being able to block good edge rushers. So keep an eye on that matchup as well. But all in all, and I honestly can't even believe I'm saying this, Alan, if you look at the film, Georgia, of course, is a faster, more athletic version of Florida. Uh, LSU, we said, was a slightly better version of Florida. Georgia, on paper, technically is a slightly better than slightly version of Florida. Uh, But that LSU game exposed a lot of Fromm's weaknesses that really to date Allen, no one had exposed, including Alabama last year. And then of course, Tyler Rummery will love to say that that's because they didn't have two NFL running backs and a host of other guys. That's true. That's true. But they still, Allen ran the ball extremely effectively against LSU. And for some inexplicable reason, they just didn't run it a lot. They really got a little pass happy in that game when they fell down 10, nothing. I do not expect them to make that mistake against us. So, offensively, defensively, whatever you want to get into before we get into the keys to the game, this game is probably going to be decided on how well we stop their rushing attack. I expect them to recommit to playing good defense and running the football in this game. And whether or not we can stop it's going to be a tremendous challenge. Post-David Reese, we've been pretty good at it. So we're going to find out. Penalty-wise, both teams heavily penalized, which seems to be a theme of good teams in, in college football. I don't know that you get away from that, but both teams are almost equally penalized. Florida's still worse. Georgia's highly there. And then injury-wise, none, right, Alan? No injuries we know of? And we seem to be pretty healthy heading into this game. No big headlines, at least that I've seen, unless something dropped today that we weren't aware of. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. How much of that LSU game was an aberration, and how much was that an exposing of what they don't do well and what they... Um, aren't able to stop and what are they unable to generate on offense? So James, you've talked about, you've already talked about one key to victory, stopping their rushing attack specifically. How do you feel like we're going to scheme? Are we going to go heavy along the defensive front? Are we going to try to bring more linebackers again and and stay away from some of our, um, I guess, defensive back heavy alignments? So in the LSU game, early on, LSU dodged maybe four or five bullets where Georgia ran right past their corners. They have talented corners for easy touchdowns, and Fromm missed them. That affected the game greatly, significantly changed how Georgia called plays and how LSU played defense. And what I'm saying by that is if he connects on a couple of those, LSU is thinking differently with who they're bringing into the box and how they're playing. I expect us, though, to take notes from the LSU film and say, well, if we can drop guys into coverage, we don't have to be as aggressive as often. We're probably going to blitz more on first down, obvious rundown, so try to really keep that to a two-yard or or less gain. Play coverage more on second down, which is their play action down, which leads me to believe, Alan, that we'll probably stick in our base defense 
but we probably will not use four down linemen except for when we think there's a good chance based upon their personnel what they're doing. Now, this has been a weakness for us all year long, which is why we could be put in a particular quandary LSU is not put in. LSU's linebackers are better than our linebackers, especially their their pass rushers. Moon is unable to get home on almost every time he goes. So that is probably the, the ultimate question of this defense is we've continued to highlight the struggles when we run a traditional 3-4. I think we're athletic enough when we go with our front four with Polite and CC and others to, to have them act as that drop-in-coverage linebacker. So I guess what I'm saying is if we do have four defensive linemen on the field, maybe expect the guy standing up to act more like a linebacker at times. I don't know how often you're going to see all four guys with their hand on the ground like we've been seeing recently against Georgia's team. Uh, just because Georgia's smart, they will hit you with play action. You have to honor that. Uh, but either way, I don't think the film indicates that that's a strategy we're going to be using a significant amount of time. Keep an eye on it, though, because Georgia does have, I think, an advantage when we're in our traditional 3-4, especially when Moon is in the game. Teams have been running at him all day long. And Georgia's running backs average one of the highest yards per carry in the SEC. Both of them, both um, both Holyfield and Swift. And Swift. And both of those guys can gouge you. Holyfield's a banger and Swift's a speed guy. So keep an eye on it from film, though. I couldn't gauge one way or the other. If it were me and our coaching, I'd tell you right now, I'd keep moving off the field and I'd, I'd go four guys. I'd go four defensive linemen almost the whole game. I don't think you lose anything with how Georgia plays with that. And maybe that's what Grantham sides on. This will be interesting. Brad Stewart's going to be a really key figure in this game. He's done some really nice things in coverage. He still is a liability in run support. Um, if you watch the Vanderbilt game um, when they had that 98-yard drive um, after the interception, the first play, Stewart takes the wrong angle. He basically follows Reese inside instead of like to the outside where the running back bounces it, and then he's gone. We have no one on the edge there, and that should have been Stewart. <sighs> I don't know. I'm worried about our young guys in the secondary. I'm worried about Stewart and run support and also getting beat over the top in some of these play-action passes. I'm worried, does Fred Dean hold up? Because I think George is the type of team that's going to look at C.J. Henderson and say, we're not going to mess with this guy. We're going to attack the freshman, just like we're going to look at their freshman, and I would hope attack him. And so those two guys, Stewart and Dean, how do they do – in both, and Dean needs to step it up and run defense as well. How do those two guys hold up in both the pass and the run? And do we do a good job of basically guessing? Are we putting them in bad down and distance? Are we run blitzing on first down to create some of these third and long scenarios where we can get to the quarterback, where we can get Polite, Zuniga, Jefferson coming downhill at Fromm? And then the wild card here is Fields. Terry Wilson killed us. Killed us. I mean, Fields is infinitely more talented than Wilson, maybe not quite as elusive as Wilson was in that game. But does he, I guess, get us out of some of our preferred looks and tendencies, um, the things that we want to do because we have to account for him? And then offense, again, are we able to use the success that we had against Vanderbilt and with P. Ryan and Scarlett in running the ball? Um, Vanderbilt is very different than Georgia. Um, but I think the seeds are there for us to be able to run the ball effectively. If we're asking Felipe to drop back and throw the ball a ton, I don't think we're going to have the success throwing sideways that we've had either against Mississippi State or against uh, Vanderbilt with either wide receiver screens or swing passes to the running backs. 
if we're going to attack them, it's going to have to be vertically. I think we have the receivers to do it. So can we run the ball so that our play action is effective enough that we're going to be able to take shots downfield? So look for look at yards per carry from each of those guys, not just total numbers. <clears throat> if we're hitting around five-ish, I think that bodes really well um, for us to be able to move the ball consistently. Um, I don't know that we're going to be able to do that, but I, that's my hope if we're going to have a shot at winning this game. All right. So a lot of a lot of good points and packages in there. And I think for me, there's this stat we talked about where where Kirby's team, Kirby and his team, whether he's at Bama in this case or now he's at Georgia here, 7 and 0 against Mullen. Four games where both teams are ranked. Mullen averaged 8.6, 8.6 points Allen against Kirby Smart's defenses with 273 yards. Now, Different talent situation at Florida, even this year. We highlighted that during the Mississippi State game. Florida is, is on paper, more talented than Mississippi State top to bottom on the roster. Mississippi State has a couple of dudes on this year's team that are going to be higher NFL picks. But overall, more talent. So now we go into a situation where Kirby Smart still has more talent, although I'll be the first to admit the defense is not at all an Alabama defense versus a Mississippi State offense in this situation. So... I do expect to have more production than that. But I have to ask myself this question. It's pretty realistic for us to assume that we're going to score between 17 and 20 points. That would be a good showing, I think, against this edition of Georgia's defense. I think that'd be almost all we can muster. Can our defense hold Georgia to 17 or 20? It's possible. It seems likely even after the LSU game. I'm just not sure that we're ready for that yet. I don't think that Georgia is as bad as they looked against LSU. Road game, hostile environment, things got away from them. I think they panicked. And although we've been managing games fantastically well, we did put ourselves in a massive hole against Vanderbilt. We've had we've we've had to sort of walk out of some bad situations before. I'm not sure we're ready to win this game yet. It's hard for me to see Georgia losing two games in a row with the talent that they have. It does not seem like that's where they're going. This is also a game that Florida can afford to lose, and if we lost it close, it'd be a victory, uh, whereas Georgia really cannot afford to lose this game. And for those narratives, I almost feel like the psychological reasons here factor largely. I think the key to this game hinges entirely on both teams' ability to run the ball. And that's a cliche, as we've mentioned before, but it is very true on film. We have outrushed our last five opponents and outgained them. Georgia going to the LSU game and outrushed and outgained all of their opponents. That script flipped entirely on them. LSU ran for 275 yards. A lot of that were like big jailbreak runs. Whichever team runs the ball more effectively is going to have more of their playbook open. It's going to put more pressure on the other team's defense, neither team's defense being a juggernaut. Even though both are capable of playing very well, both of these teams are prone to giving up big plays team that runs the ball more effectively is going to have an easier time doing that. Everything in me says it's going to be Georgia, especially given the fact that they have a much higher yard per carry average, and they've tended to shy away from running it as much as they did last year, which probably is a little bit foolish. So I expect Georgia to double down, run the ball a whole lot against us, and see if we're up for the challenge. If we are early on, I expect good things for Florida. If we're not, I think we're in trouble. So for me, and I'll go first here with my score, Allen, I think Georgia still wins this game. It feels great to even be talking about this in a world where it's not going to be crazy. 
for us to win this game. Before LSU, I would have said less than a 5% chance we win. It feels now like there's probably a 1 in 3 chance we win this game. And I don't think that's being being optimistic and it's being realistic. I just think this is not going to be one of those three chances, but it entirely could be. I think Georgia wins this game by a score of of maybe 23 to 17. So close. And and close. I think it's within the spread. Uh, I think we've done a great job at keeping games close. I think that Georgia has has put out there that if you if you minimize their explosive plays, they have a hard time putting all full drives together. They don't generate a lot of turnovers. You know, we don't give up. We don't give up any turnovers. So if you look at everything that you could look at stat wise, this feels like this game should be close now. Um, all that being said, is I don't see a narrative Allen where we blow out Georgia. I can absolutely see narratives where they blow us out. And so although I'm predicting a close score, I think there's a there's a there's a decent shot this game gets away from us. And that's not going to, in my opinion, reflect poorly on the Gators. Uh, we're not ready, I think, for this kind of game yet. We could still win this game. I'll be there. I'm excited about it. I'm as excited as I've been in a long time for a Florida-Georgia game. But I'm thinking Georgia wins 23-17. I think this game stays pretty close until maybe about halfway through the third quarter. I think Georgia pulls away a little bit. I have my doubts whether we're going to stop them from completing those big plays, like you said. I don't know that we're ready to be in this game yet with them offensively. I, I think, we, Felipe, you might see a few more picks from him than we want. You know, he's not turned the ball over, except for, you know, fumble here or there. But this is a game where we're going to have we're going to need him to make some plays, and I don't know that he's going to be able to do it. So I'm going to say Georgia 20, Florida, excuse me, Georgia 30. Florida 20. So close, though, up until maybe Georgia pushes away a little bit late. All right, so that's two Georgia wins from Allen and I, which I know is uber depressing. Uh, hopefully, those But a you, fun game. I think it's going to be a competitive game. It was not last year. Hopefully those of you that are predicting Gator wins are right. Uh, but, hey, we've come a long way. If you would have asked me before the LSU game, I would have said we're going to lose by 20. And I almost still can't believe I'm sitting in this seat right now saying we lose by six. That feels incredible. I feel scared for saying it. But like I've always said, I watch the film and the film instructs where I go. And the film suggests to me that this game is possible for these two teams to be close to each other. And in fact, maybe not even possible, probable they play close to Well, if to Georgia each other. loses this game, that a, puts a major damper on their season moving forward. I, I think a lot of their goals get washed down the drain. And so, like you said, I think they are going to come out hard for this game. I think LSU surprised them with what they did with them tactically, and I don't. We're not going to have that same advantage, so that that gives me pause when in predicting a Gator win. Yeah, and that that's probably the biggest problem is the bye week came at a better time for them than it did for us. We didn't need to go to the drawing board. We didn't get exposed. There's nothing we learned about ourselves that oh shoot, we can't handle that, and they did. And unfortunately, they got two full weeks to work on every single thing LSU completely surprised them with. And if Kirby's as good of a coach as I think he is. I don't foresee them all of a sudden magically struggling when we drop eight, which we're going to try. We have to try. You have to make them prove they can beat it. Uh, but they should be ready for that, whether it's new plays, new tactics, or Fromm sees the field better. I expect him not to be confused by that. And if that's the case, then you could find yourself in for a long day because they will be hard to stop. All right, let's look at the weekend's games. Uh, Clemson, Allen, Clemson, heads to Florida State. Favored by 16, basically the same spread they had against NC State which shows what Vegas thinks about this uh, this uptick. Florida State team, game feels weird to me. Uh, not really sure what to think of this. Florida State's very, very talented. They feel like they could give a, this Clemson team some trouble, but 
you got to think that the offensive line problems for Florida State are going to come to rear their ugly head in Chris Clemson's front seven, right? Uh, If FSU is competitive in this game, it'll be disappointing to me. You could give me 24 points. I would take Clemson here. I think they're going to run a train on them. They're moving in the right direction right now. FSU, despite some of their modest gains, is not ready for Clemson. They're not ready for that. Yeah, I totally agree. That offensive line is a major problem for Florida State, and Clemson has one of the best. So you're taking 16 with them? I think so. I think they win this game comfortably, especially especially now that I think they're starting to roll. I think they've got the quarterback they know they have. There's no distractions. They're gelling together. I think they're starting to get better and better each week. Iowa, one-loss Iowa team looking better and better each week. On the road against Penn State. Penn State favored by 5.5. I don't know what to do with this Penn State team. Every time I think they've got it together, they go sideways on me. If this was at Iowa, I would feel great about Iowa. On the road, uh, five and a half is not that big a number. I'm going to go ahead and take Penn State. Okay. I like Iowa here on the points because Penn State plays close games <laughs> and Iowa plays close games. So I'll take those five and a half points. USF on the road against Houston. USF ranked, Houston not ranked. USF undefeated, Houston with one loss, but Houston favored by seven and a half. Yeah. UCF has been winning games, but like they won 6 0 and stuff like that. Uh, Houston feels like they're ready for to make a move here at Oliver and Company. I'll take them. I've not watched either of these teams play, but when I see a seven and a half line early on in the week like this, I feel like Vegas knows what's going on. Uh, that that's like a, a sizable difference between being a seven point favorite. So I'm going to stick with Houston there. Kentucky ranked twelfth. Missouri not ranked. Missouri favored by six and a half at home. Ooh, Missouri is so interesting. They've been. Like I said, it's such a wild card all year. I think Kentucky's going to be able to slow them down. I don't think they're going to be able to put up the points. I don't think I can give Missouri six and a half, even at home. I'll, I'll take Kentucky. Not Maybe Missouri wins, but I, I can't give up that many points. Yeah, six and a half seems high. I like Missouri. Missouri is a volatile team, though. We like I like Missouri to, to be the upset team because they can score a lot. This is the game, though, to me that tells me everything I want to know about Kentucky. They really haven't played an offensive team like Missouri. Uh, this is going to tell me how good they are on defense. That defense seems really good. It seems hard for me to believe that Missouri, a team that struggled with South Carolina and lost in a game that really surprised me, is going to be able to beat this Kentucky team who, who just plays really sound football, doesn't give you anything, won't turn the ball over. Missouri's prone to turning it over. That number does seem high to me. I'm going to go with Kentucky, like I've been saying, until proven otherwise. Until Kentucky proves to me otherwise, I'm going to go with Kentucky. They've yet to have anybody put up good offensive numbers against them. Missouri has to win by generating offensive points. This seems like a tough game for them. But can they snow, slow down Snell? I don't. I don't know if they can. I don't know either. It indicates, though, like we said, that Vegas likes Missouri. Missouri's a good team by a lot of metrics. That's why they're intriguing. But I think this is a very interesting matchup for them. So I guess both of us are on Kentucky there. Washington State, fresh off an excellent win against Oregon on the road against the Stanford team, coming off a bye. Stanford favored by three, almost probably exclusively because they're off the bye, right? Yeah, I think Washington State's still going to be drunk. Coming into this game and uh, Stanford sobers them up. I'll, I'll stay with Stanford here. Yeah, Washington State typically has a hard time matching up with Stanford the way that they play. I like Washington State this year, though. I feel like Mike Leach. They're tends fun. To, I like him. This is a tough to, one. Yeah, he tends to build this fervor and then he fades away every season. For some reason, after watching that Oregon game, I feel like this team's for real. So go Cougs. Texas A&M versus Mississippi State. 
A&M ranked, Mississippi State not, yet Mississippi State favored by two. A&M. I mean, Mississippi State, if A&M puts up any kind of points, I don't think State can stay with them. They haven't put up a decent number against anybody really recently. So I I think A&M is talented enough to hold hold them offensively. So Mississippi State's got to prove to me they can put up enough points to win a game. Yeah, the only way Mississippi State can win is by running the ball with Nick Fitzgerald. They tried that. They ran it like 20-plus times for 20 yards or something dismal against LSU. A&M's defense is not LSU's defense. I also don't think they're going to allow Nick Fitzgerald to run for 150 yards. So I like A&M in this game, like Jimbo in this game. Another example, though, Allen of a ranked team on the road against an unranked team. He's home dogs. An underdog. And then Texas, only minus three against a 4-3 and three Oklahoma State team. And before we tackle this, I think this illustrates the question we asked earlier about the tiers in football. What are you seeing? You're seeing teams 9 through maybe 40 are basically in the eyes of Vegas pretty darn interchangeable, which is kind of what we talked about. But this one, Texas seems to be playing really well. Oklahoma State not playing so well. Only a three-point favorite on the road. Yeah, I would stay far away from this if I were a gambler. Texas should win this game, but I don't know that Texas is ready to be consistent enough to go on the road and play a team like Oklahoma State and just wax them. I think this will be close. The number isn't that big. Oh, man, I'm tempted to take Oklahoma State here, but I'll go Texas. But don't be surprised if, if State wins this game. I like Texas here. I think the Tom Herman bus is just getting revved up. Middle of year two, team's getting better and better. You're discounting the mullet that much? I love the mullet, but I just, this was not supposed to be a good year for them. This is a clear transition year. We talked about it at the beginning of the season. Uh, I think they're in the middle of that transition year, and Texas is in the middle of ascending. So I like Texas in the three points here for sure. I don't, I don't know. Texas is – they're so intriguing. We'll see if they've been drinking their own Kool-Aid after that Oklahoma win. I could see them not being as focused as I would want a team to go into Stillwater and play this game. My gunny still has a few tricks up his sleeve. It's kind of a fun game um, if you're into the Big 12 football scene. Um, but, yeah, not a big national slate, you know, outside Florida, Georgia. I think that's why you're seeing so much focus on the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. James, I wish I could be there with you. Uh, it's going to be maybe my first one I've missed in a long time when I wasn't out of the country. So uh, do you expect like a crazy atmosphere? Do you expect both fan bases to be pretty intense? I think this is going to be the best atmosphere. I want to say that I can remember, and the reason is I've been to almost every single Florida-Georgia game since the year 2000. And after a while, the atmosphere starts to blend because it's always so good. Uh, and I remember the college game day atmosphere in 05. Um, 08 was pretty hyped. 08 was after they won. Very, very hyped. That that was it. That was maybe the most charged. I remember the stadium being pregame. Uh, this one feels like it's going to be a big atmosphere, but not this. I think both teams know Georgia knows they're not where they should be. Florida, I think, knows we're not really great. So I think it's going to be a fun atmosphere. Yeah, hype. Because I think not Georgia's nervous. Yeah, because they have a lot to lose, and we have nothing to lose. But we're kind of good. So I think for Florida fans, this is as fun as it gets. you got a Georgia team who you, you love you love ruining their weekend. And really, we're just all gravy at this point in time. And it seems to shape up well. I know that the game itself, ticket demand, seems way higher than it's been in a long, 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 long time for this game. Because we've kind of had a lopsided scenario for a while now. One team is good or not. Correct, correct. So it seems perfect. I'm super looking forward to it. Last year, famously, I even said this in the pod, I got to the beach, hung out with my buddies. 
we had a bunch of us in a condo, woke up in the morning, and I was like, I'm not going to the game. I'm not going to this dumpster fire of a game. Stayed on the beach. After the first quarter, I just stopped watching. <laughs> I've never done that before. So I'm back on the train. Here I am. I'm going. Good job. Yeah, Alan, I'll, I'll miss I'll miss watching the game with you. I can remember many a times watching it, uh, watching it there with you, especially the game where Jordan Reed and Jordan Reed famously Oof. fumbled going into the end zone. I'll never forget that Oof, moment. Right in sitting, front of us. Sitting in those seats baking in the sun. But uh, should be an enjoyable one. If you're going, have a fun, safe weekend. We hope you enjoyed the pod today. We loved bringing it to you. It was great to have Alan back in the booth. Uh, we will be back next Monday. As always, if you like the content, like us on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, send us a message, send us some feedback. Become a patron on Patreon. We appreciate doing this show for you guys, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Honey, I switched the family to Boost Mobile and we got so much more. Like what? Well, we got four free LG Stylo 5 phones, four lines for just $25 per line per month. I smashed up the car and unlimited gigs. Wait, did you say you smashed up the car? Yes, it's completely smashed. But four free phones. Switch to Boost and get four lines for just $25 per line per month. Four free phones with unlimited gigs, all on our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. Visit BoostMobile.com for details. Great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint, and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10, or call 800-SPRINT-1 today. $19.79 a month after $19.80 monthly credit. Apply with two bills with approved credit. 18-month lease and new line of service. If canceled, Lily remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere. Third-day activation fee restrictions apply.